Spoken Word, half an hour of poetry and performance, your connection to Melbourne's grassroots poetry scene, the voice of those of us who have nothing but our voices. and welcome to Spoken Word on 3CR Community Radio. My name is Ella Fanelska. So who is my guest in the studio today? Peter Godforsaken Matthews is the stage name and author of journalist Peter Salvatore Matthews. First published at 11, tertiary educated at 15, head of his city's Writers Guild at 18, and Melbourne poet by 22. He writes bite-sized epics about history, spirituality, philosophy, and war. He explores the peaks and valleys of the human condition. He intends to master every form of writing possible and get people excited about Australian history. Welcome to 3CR Spoken Word, Peter. Hello. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Thanks for coming in today. Um, now today, um, you're going to share with us your uh, what you referred to as your short epic. Um, yeah, yeah, Vandemonian. Did I say that correctly? Yeah, you did. It um, it's funny because it's not something that I've heard incredibly often. The name. It's something that I've seen written a billion times. It's one of those archaic things, you know. And like, what are you wanting to kind of say with this piece? What am I wanting to say? Many things. For one, I suppose I've basically I've had this philosophy for a few years that we approach Australian history wrong. The way we learn it in school is dry, it's boring. It's like, this is what happened, and um, this is what we can tell you, the very little that we can tell you. This war happened, and people find the wars of the last century relatable because we all had relatives there. We were all, I suppose, privy to the personal experience You know, we had soldiers coming home and Australian culture tends to be really working class. So we really got the point of view of the regular man on the ground who had to suffer and, you know, watch his friends be dismembered, which you generally don't get in history before that. You generally get the the point of view of someone who was educated and able to write and pass on something. And we really didn't get that in the masses as um, as a global culture until, you know, the Vietnam War. So I suppose we're okay about the first two world wars. Everything else, not so much. I believe that Australian history is at its best when we assume that there are no heroes. You know, everyone who came here, they tended to have a fairly shadowy past. The first fleet, of course, all convicts. The second fleet was the first with women, and um, the things that were done to those women were absolutely horrendous before they even arrived on the shore. And there was this... um, When they arrived, even, there was an orgy in every way possible right there on the shore. Um, But where it gets interesting is the unheard bits, like that Captain Cook wasn't the first Englishman on shore. It was his cousin Isaac when there were... Um, they were paddling towards shore and they saw the um, the indigenous populace kind of standing there. They were um, very, you know, muscular, manly. It's why the suburb of Manly is so named. And Captain Cook just kind of leans over his cousin and he says, jump off, Isaac. Wow. <laughs> and so he kicks his cousin, Isaac Smith, out of the boat. And this is the guy who goes and confronts them and says, hey, uh, this land doesn't belong to anyone 
and also it's ours. Wow, wow. So this history buff, this interest that you have in history is very much apparent right here. And um, yes. in this poem, it's you really, um, it's like history through poetry. Um, yeah, essentially. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's hear, we're going to hear it in three parts, correct? Yes. Yeah, so let's hear part one. All right. Under the world, there's land made of flutes, taller than any ship's mast. Inside a shadowy gap the shore hides, rumbles, while all the world plays. These flute cliffs howl, made of stone, made to grieve, ready for them to come home. Home on their convict ships, ripe with the tune, chains jingle out behind feet. They are the drivers of great wooden termites, sailing to gnaw through the flutes, wear down the living and build up their nest, till there's no sound in the land. Nothing but icy wind sent from the sea, trying to play while they sleep. A blush of nature brought the land to life and humans after ages added squares. The angles of a paddock, rifle straight, an age of clouds that drag along the earth, where sheep go grazing over giant hills. Of warriors who die from spears not thrown when redcoats hold their smoking muskets tight, and chiefs with hand raised up the sign of peace, who mean to say, create a fire at will. The governor, he stumbles over steps to offer passers-by a mug of beer. He plunges one whole stiff coat scarlet arm into a rounded barrel's fluid swell, and people dodge his gaze in Hobart town. He likes their prison pockmarks, scarred with rank and wealth and all the poisons tempting him. He's born to lords, the boring and the bored. Still, humans creep among the thylacines. The natives and the pockmarked sharing sheep and breaking bread they foraged from the towns. The white men robbing burdens from the rich. They'll kill for heavy gold and brick-shaped gems. They grow their beards to show they're of the earth and call themselves bushrangers, floating like the sheep across the land, their final home. They give the riches settlers, settlers... Weights of gold and burdened like the drunken governor, the rich allow their theft to rule the roads. They bend to bushrangers who rule the towns. The points and corners rule what they can find and shrink at nature like the shade at noon. Like the world sails, the continents closer together, colliding them, civilizations will spread through those lands, friends and conquerors. One day the hunters stalk over the hills in a line, spread wide, ready speared, creeping and foraging flesh like they have since the sun first leapt through the sky. White men stop lifting their burdens to watch, and then vanish into the trees. Soon, at the top of a hill, starts a droplet of red, pinprick fattening, taking the form of a square with a glint like a dangerous plant's fuzz on them. Closer, the hunters approach. It's a stubble of bayonets poking out. Mirrored like water, the colour of smoke. Bayonets are the blood of earth. 
drums come the drums beating drums footsteps drum toward the hunters who bunch their fists they raise their spears to the earth bloodied spears and they aim rear back their arms now an eruption like twigs cracks the air and the smoke hides their warriors snapping of balls and the smack of a spear through meat spears fall and fill the air now they run now they fall bearing their chests to the ghosts in that thundercloud now the grass holds them as always it has mother earth reassures the pierced clouds of smoke floating like sheep on the ground, fade away in the atmosphere. Civilizations collide, and the coasts make a hill of humanity. Children or corpses, the grass holds them close in the end, and it feeds on them. Now, when the wind bows those blades of grass, each of them points to its memories. Mm. So this is part one, and yeah. it's just—it's so powerful, Peter. <laughs> Cheers! I yeah. always worry about that, you no. know, because I'm from a fiction and journalism background, where which we will, you know, ninety percent of what we're told is what's terrible. <laughs> but it's just so, um, like, beautifully written, just full of imagery. It's just, yeah, yeah. That, that part one—it just grabs me. Excellent. You're listening to 3CR's Spoken Word and you're joining me, Ella Fanelska, and my guest today, Peter Godforsaken Matthews. And we just heard a little bit of Mother by Peter Jones and Friends, which I think sits in very nicely with um, Peter's long, well, short epic, <laughs> as we've defined it today, um, Van Demonian. We've just heard part one and we're about to hear part two, but um, Peter will give us a little context um, of one and two. 
Yeah, there are a few interesting things I can say about it. One thing I feel like I was too subtle about was the flutes at the very beginning of the first part. Now, the cove that they first came into in Tasmania, you see pictures of it, and it's this big uh, face of cliffs pretty well. And geographically, I think the technical term for this is flutes. They are these really long, flute-shaped, grey things. They look really fragile, but it's rock. You know, it's all rock, and it's been developed that way over an extremely long time, longer than you know any civilization can remember. And it's really hard to fit a ship in there, but they did. I think they lost a few trying. Mm. The other one, um, Lieutenant Governor Thomas Davy was a really interesting figure. He's the drunk guy you see on the steps of Hobart Town Hall. And on special occasions, he actually would go out there with a barrel of rum and just offer it to people. It was an incredibly drunken culture. This man, he started in 1812 as lieutenant governor, and he had no experience. He just happened to know a guy who was you know, looking for a governor on behalf of uh, Macquarie, the guy who was running Australia at the time. And they kind of said to him, hey, you've been in a couple wars, come do this. He wasn't very good at it. He only lasted a couple years, but he was incredibly fair. He treated the indigenous people as well as he treated the white people, prisoners and free, um, well, people who would become free eventually. But that was stamped out quite quickly. Uh, Part two was about the machine breakers, the Luddites, really interesting people. Around the 1830s in England, there was this movement of people who were really worried because machines were appearing everywhere and taking all their jobs. Everyone suddenly had to adjust to this new world, this new technology. Everything they'd been trained for was useless now, and they didn't react as well as we are now in the 21st century to the same thing. They starved pretty well. They um, put together organizations where they would go around and they would break apart people's machines, and they, uh, they couldn't really execute the leaders because that would create martyrs and the riots would get worse and worse. Prominent people were losing their farms to these riots, so they eventually sent them to Van Diemen's Land, and that's what the second part's about. Let's hear that now. Humans built life with their mortal hands, and he killed it. It warmed the factory walls, living, pumping, beating, iron. It came too soon. There were still farmers. The town wasn't ready. They named the iron heart a boiler, too hot for anyone's chest. It served a different being, untouchable, dangerous. When the boiler appeared, men lost their jobs. Sundown ached their muscles. Red cloud spread over the sky to sweeten it, like it had since before heathen gods peopled Britain. But sundown didn't bring silence anymore. There was always a child crying behind some worn-out door, tramping to bed. I whinge, you've done nothing wrong. I whinge, Ma couldn't find a job in the factory. I whinge, we'll try to get your taters tomorrow night. He waded through the boiler's heat with shovel raised. He smashed and clattered, bent the panes. Now the boiler knew. It spat steam at him and he bashed it apart. It bled through his hair and pulled to his ankles and scorched his limbs. It pulsed. It creaked and stopped. Iron steamed at his boiled boots. The prisoner's irons 
froze his wrists when they sent him onto the ship's deck, made of dead organic wood, to Van Diemen's land. Port Arthur's floor is always moving, breathing. In prison sleeping quarters, men arrange themselves in rank, like creatures of the sea will do when piled in buckets. The ugly kings, the young and lordly, must be stretched, made flexible. They make them into wives. The prison's castle walls that loom in grey across the sky, their faces cold. They make the darkest shadows in the heat. They're cool to touch, though they feel dead. They feel as if they have a soul. The dirt roads rumble under redcoats mixed with bullet and bullet belt and brown coat bounty hunters. When they return at evening, slouching over silent road, another campfire ends at 60,000 a year life. Beneath the grass, it waits for its return in dreaming. With seeds in saddlebags, the horses pound the road flat as they come. With creaking carts, they mask the growl of convict stomachs' clash of chains. The pioneers will carve out trenches in the land, learn the luxury of honest coin. The women all sleep head to foot, arranged in rank, like creatures of the sea will do inside a cup. They wither. Beauty now means what it does to nuns who wear their wrinkles framed in cloth. A ripple laps the land, a whipcord plunged into the salted stream. It thumps into the dirt and hardens in the sun, stiff and crackling. A man's toes lap the dirt in ripples every time the lash rips ribbons off his skin. The land moves mostly in a dance, hills bobbed sky in mossy waves, while thylacine pups wrestle, wombats, devils, burrow with the worms, and pass the island's buried memories. 1840. The Machine Breaker. January. Neglect of duty. One week in irons. Tampering with leg irons, 20 lashes. February, neglect of duty, four weeks in irons. Endeavouring to incite prisoners into riot, 30 lashes. Having fruit in his possession, two weeks in chain gang. Having a towel in his possession, four days solitary confinement. March. Having a towel in his possession, and using it inappropriately as head covering, two months in irons. Neglect of duty, three months in chain gang. Tampering with leg irons to loosen them, 50 lashes. Having paraphernalia of secret society in his possession. Indefinite solitary confinement. Peter, what would you mm. say is your favourite form of writing? Because I know that you, you know, do poetry and you're yeah. a journalist as well and you want to kind of, as you um, said to me, you want to master every different form. Yeah, it's an incredibly lofty ambition and I'm going to do the best I can. I'm far from mastering poetry, as you've noticed. You know, my stuff's very narrative and that's because I'm so used to fiction and stuff that I have to kind of think about I suppose the art of poetry, which is capturing a moment in space rather than a progression in time like narrative does. Um, if I, I would probably avoid saying what my favorite is purely because I'd find it hard to choose, but I really enjoy long form fiction where you really get the chance to get to know people rather than say something like poetry where 
a piece will become very popular if it's something short that we can all relate to, you know, if it's an emotion that we've all felt or uh, an opinion that we all believe. I like getting the chance to learn an entirely new perspective from scratch, you know, about a new character or like picking up a book or even something outlandish like sci-fi and fantasy where, you know, these things have never happened before and you've never seen them, you've never experienced them. But you're given the time to learn them and kind of, I suppose, know them in a way as well as you know yourself. You get lost in that paradigm. Mm. And what is it about poetry in particular or like spoken word in particular that you do enjoy? Yeah, it's the diversity of it, I think. Okay. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. yeah, there, are, there are so many different forms. I mean, there are things that I love and things that irritate me about every genre. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I uh, I love, you know, the chance to be able to sit down and, you know, through words have something really introspective and meditative and almost like, you know, the kind of spiritual experience you get from, you know, sitting and looking into yourself or, you know, finding yourself on a hill surrounded by landmarks that are bigger than anything you've ever seen humans build. I get those feelings from poetry. I mean, slam is nice. Being yelled at is nice. It has a bit of everything. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There's there is huge diversity within poetry. <laughs> yeah. Um, you're joining me today, Elephant Elska, with my guest Peter Godforsaken Matthews, and we're hearing his short epic, Van Demonian, <laughs> and we're going to hear the third and final part. Ah, excellent. Third part. Excuse my bad Irish accent. I, kneeling. At this iron bark stump, where the red coast, where the red coats, flogged to death, our first martyr, do swear that I will fight to liberate Ireland, while there still be life in me. I will visit with fire and vengeance all who aid the invader, be it for man, woman, or child. I will lock the workings of this secret society in the safety of my soul. For only the Almighty to see, and I will prepare always to answer the call to arms in cobblestone Dublin or Cork's hills. Transportation and irons will not stop me. I will meet them with pike or chains. I will slay them on the green of war or in their beds. My life belongs to this society, and while it lasts, I last in this land of mocking sun and carnivores. Fallen heroes wake up on an island, green and peopled with a race that always was. Druids call them Tuatha de Danann, and they come the way they died, in iron clothed, jingling over ship decks. When they pass him, he remembers stories of such warriors slain before his birth, them armed with pikes and redcoats, bayonets ripping through their vests, holding in their bowels their red and brit skin, gutted three times, stumbling to the water's edge where their allies meant to land, and dying, just like Huolin, who left his wife and Ire, left her for the death and song of war ghosts. One day, when the bristling square of British troops peels away their home, machine-efficient, up she rises with her husband's pike and guns, and the island watches 
when her shade comes. In the women's colony, she ranks most high. She ignores the chaplain's Bible fire and brimstone, and ignores the lonely lady cons taking one another in the moonlight. It does not affect them when the island rabbles with suggestions for a change of name. Name must be a map of what's inside us. Call those clouds and memories Tasman's mania. And the small child who declared he would die for the land of his upbringing. Each year he watches the land brown and turn from its forest green. Those trees not conquered by industry catch the moon's light in their crescent leaves. Earth's silver curls, tall as pines with a scent that clears sinuses. Summer soon fades them to husks of cicada grey, dying as slow as a man with a ball of lead stuck in him. Battle slow, famine slow. Memory wind, memory rain patters like muskets and clapsticks from far away. One day he hears them, his ear in the grass and his back in shreds. Rocks in the shape of a bundled-up baby of campfire sticks and stones, body parts. One escaped convict with the clouds for his tablecloth. And in his other raised ear sings the breeze of a cloud, a black line that swept over the land and made dark all the fires of native life. He can smell one final campfire fade to the metal of gunpowder. Shoes filled with blood going cold, he crawls off to the hospital. On song sang the land and wind, played like flutes, clouds parted, sunburn and sails rose. People lost shackles and pockmark scars, houses rose over shacks. Still the land waited with fire and thylacines under the Tasman sticks, dreaming and singing the stories of Eon's old campfires. You're listening to 3CR Spoken Word and you've been listening to Peter Godforsaken Matthews read his short epic, Van Demonian, and that was the third and final part. Thank you. Thank you. It's the first time I've ever read it to someone else. <laughs> really? Yeah, I mean, I've had a lot of opportunities. Like, I've designed it so that, like, it's nine small self-contained poems, but that very final pit you just heard, it's not a uh, part of those poems. It's something I can only read in the entire thing because, you know, it doesn't really fit in with the context if you read one small bit. Fantastic. So now our listeners can hear it and it can be podcasted. Um, so that's really great. It'll yeah, it's really immortal. Great. Yeah, It's exactly. a meme. I don't control it anymore. Exactly. It's out there. Thank you for sharing it with yeah. us. I had a final question that I did want to ask you. Um, who and what in well two two actually oh. um, who and what inspires you to write? A conjoined question. Mm-hmm. Pretty well everything. I mean, like when I was a small child, before I actually knew how to write, I'd dictate to my parents and they'd type it up on this little typewriter. Like I didn't speak until I was about three years old. I feel like it was coincidence that I ended up like this. I didn't write until they started teaching us in primary school, and I was quite average at that, I think. But I don't know. I found that narrative world, it kind of, I enjoyed making things in my mind, you know, making worlds and kind of having that artistic control over my world, like I've kind of done with Oz History here, like how I've kind of said, okay, how can I make this into something that improves what it is? Like, how can I add something to what's out there in the world? But, you know, that fundamental art question, 
So that that question of like, what can I add, became really fun to me when I was young. Fun, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I was really fond of it when I was young. Is what I'm trying to say. I decided I was going to be a professional writer when I was seven, and I threw myself into that world. And I suppose it's second nature now. Like I write to soothe myself, and I write to say things. I write to create uh, change, whether it's like arguing with people on the internet, which is a lot of fun, or like saying things in conversation, or like I was a Fairfax for. I was a Fairfax for a columnist paper. <laughs> I was a columnist for a Fairfax paper for a month shy of 10 years. Wow. So, which was a lot of fun. Um, very little editing involved. They trusted me far too much. But yeah, it's, you know, it's kind of like magic almost. <laughs> Creating things that weren't there before. That's what I do. That's how I do it. There's so much more that we could squeeze out of you, but unfortunately we're out of time. It's been so great finding out about your um, insights and also hearing this poem. So thank you so much for coming into the studio today, Peter. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Not at all. Pleasure. Um, you've been listening to 3CR Spoken Word. My name's Ella Fanelska. My guest in the studio today has been Peter Godforsaken Matthews. Look him up online. Keep an eye out for when his features are coming up. And um, is there anything that you want to plug? Uh, yeah. I have zero features coming up, so someone please give me one. Ah, there you go. (laughs) Do you have um, anywhere where people can check you out, check your stuff out? Yeah, come find me on Facebook. Both my names are there, so just add whichever one you prefer. My blog is loljournalism.wordpress.com. And that's about it, really. Just look for me in public. Thanks so much for listening and look forward to your company next time.